Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 5, Ask Better Questions, where we will be looking at Chapters 7 and 8 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of diminished agency. All right, so before we begin, I do want to let you all know that we have neighbors that don't understand that not everybody wants to listen to their music. So if you can hear music, we mean no copyright infringement on anybody's anything, and we're covering our butts right now. Sorry. Anyway, give me the little thing so I can read it. All right. I'm going to try to do this faster because I had my little disclaimer. Each week we will be examining a section of the book The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian Fernemus of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. You're probably also very familiar with these as well. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, we're going to be talking about spoilers. Just no way around it. We're assuming you've got some familiarity with the books and you don't mind listening to ideas about it. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Finally, word to our community. Let's be kind to ourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. So with that, it's time for our 45-second recap. Actually, with that, I believe that we owe everybody a punishment. Well, I mean, owe is a hard word to say. Actually, no, it's not, but... Anyway, we already did it. You ate at a listener's request Cherry Garcia ice cream. And because you're not going to have the entire thing, we got it without dairy products in it. So that made it possibly worse. I don't know, actually. So speaking as an ice cream aficionado, the ice cream portion of it was not noticeably worse by virtue of being non-dairy. The cherries were another story. They were just terrible regardless. Yeah, I also forgot to hit the record button once, so you had to do it twice. But the first time, you described it as though you were eating death. I stand by what I said. Anyway, audio from that is going to be inserted now. Hi everybody, Phoenix here. I wanted to give an acknowledgement to where the suggestion for Cherry Garcia ice cream came from. It was from one of our new patrons, Kyle Fox, who messaged me on Instagram. And I wanted to also let you all know that I am a dork that doesn't know how to use a camera, apparently, and that I did not record Will's first reaction to the Cherry Garcia ice cream, which might explain why his reaction wasn't as vociferously negative as it could have been because he'd already gotten it mostly out of his system. But I wanted to let you know that we appreciate suggestions for future punishments. There is already one in the queue if he screws up again anytime soon. I wanted to say thank you and that we appreciate our followers on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. And we appreciate your suggestions. I also appreciate that almost all of them have been things to punish Will with. 
rather than me. So thank you again. That is all. Enjoy Will's punishment. So we're adults and we can have dessert first. What have we got here? Ooh. Well, I know which one's mine and which one is Will's. So Will, it turns out I am a massive dork. I took a photo and not a recording of the first time you ate Cherry Garcia non-dairy ice cream. And our fans deserve better. As it turns out, we still have some. And there's a big old cherry on top for you to eat. I mean, fans, I'm doing this for you, okay? I hope you're happy. Describe it. It's like cough syrup. And, oh my God. Ugh. Oh, oh, I just... Yeah, you know, uh, the texture is just all because it's got a cherry in it, and it's just ugh, ugh, ugh. Ham it up, fans. I, I hope you're happy because I'm not. I am. That makes one of us. And we're back. So now we can actually go into another try at this whole forty-five second recap thing, and. Lo and behold, you get a long section. Sorry. Well, here goes. Oh, uh, uh, I need to get a timer ready. You snooze, you lose. I'm not going to try to guess how many seconds this is going to take you, because if I guess, then, you know, there's still some more of the ice cream in the freezer. We'll see how this turns out. Let me know when you're ready. Sure. In three... Two, one, good luck. Kvothe accepts a drink from a mysterious stranger and fails to grasp the link to this plum-scented danger. While in line for admissions, Kvothe runs into his foe, who notes that nutmegged inhibitions might impede academic flow. Kvothe runs off to Sim for a second opinion, but the diagnosis is grim, for he's in the plumbob's dominion. After trading for fellow slot, Kvothe rides out the worst on Sim's meager cot, though he makes a mess first. With Ari's help, Kvothe confronts his memory and lets out a yelp of experience's sensory. With admissions impending, Kvothe cashes out his tab, and Anchor gifts him some for spending, much more than a drab. Elodin provides a demonstration through casual arson of Kvothe's unsuitable station, like a fantasy Johnny Carson. 38.02 seconds. Bing-pot. Bing-pot? Yeah. You know, bing-pot. Bing-pot. It's when you win at bingo and you win the jackpot. You've never heard this? No. Too bad. <laughs> well, you didn't have to eat ice cream again. Good. Or cherries. Good. Congratulations, though, in shoving all of that into a 45-second rhyming couplet recap, because... Whew. Considering that I failed on a single chapter recap last time... I know. Still got it. You learned from your mistakes, unlike both. Anyway, let's get into it. So we chose for our lens here, diminished agency. And in large part, this is due to the effects of the plumb bob. The thing that has been foreshadowed since like episode two. I mean, in the best of times, Kvothe was pretty impulsive and tended to 
ask for forgiveness later. Yeah, I'm never the person that does things first and asks for forgiveness later. I always ask for permission first. And sometimes I wind up just hating myself for it. And this plumb bob really brings out the worst at Quoth, as we shall see. Alrighty, so one thing to note about the chunk of the book that we chose, it feels like there's just a little bit of tonal whiplash because we start off with Quoth's inability to reason out what he should and should not say. And it's being played for laughs. And then it quickly goes into a rather dark place for about a page and a half. After which we get one of the most amazingly funny, like I distinctly remember listening to the book while I was at work and going, this is hilarious. This is terrible, but this is hilarious. I mean, it wouldn't be a school story without some uh, good-natured pranksterisms. Or not so good-natured, as the case may be. Yeah. But the problem is that it came right after a thing that made me cry. And not because I was laughing. This book, It Contains Multitudes, is what we're getting at. Yes. So, to start us off, let's uh, start going through what happens. We zoom in on Quoth as he is waking up with a hangover an hour before admissions. And generally worrying about everything because that's what he does. And honestly, that's what most people do before a great big interview, even if they know they got it. True. He even runs through the teachers that he's like, yeah, I'm good with Kilvin's class. I'm good with Elsa Dahl. But there are also teachers that don't know me from a hole in the ground. What am I supposed to do with that? And why do they have any agency over what I am doing anyway? Granted, because they're also saying this is someone I will probably have to teach in coming semesters. <laughs> they do have a say. And also they have a say in what kind of community they want to cultivate at the school. Right. But this is all Quoth's perspective that we're talking about. Speaking of Quoth's perspective... He does talk about how the teachers specifically set books aside for students to study from. And the way that it is presented, those were the books a clever student studied before admissions. It's on the syllabus! So if any of my teachers are listening to this and have a knowledge of how Quoth is, and you've had that student who thinks that they are smarter than you are and doesn't pick up on the fact that you have given them all of the clues that shouldn't take too much cleverness or thought in order to succeed. What? The clever students do what the teachers suggest they do? What? <laughs> I mean, it would take a pretty unclever student not to. Right? I mean, they're being told, this is what we're going to ask you about. Oh, maybe I should read the book that's all about the thing you're going to ask me about. That doesn't take cleverness. It just takes the ability to get a hint when it's flashing in front of you. They're being hit with the obvious bat. 
Yeah, and he of course takes a little bit of time here to whinge about how he's the only one who doesn't have access to tomes. Well, I mean, and the other thing is he has an in. He can always ask Fella, who knows about his secret in the archives, his secret access to stacks, who could probably help him track down the ones that he needs. Okay, yes, but that would involve him having any desire whatsoever to ask for help when he actually needs it. Yeah, like I say, his predicament is not nearly as dire as he thinks it is. True. He only seems to ask for help when it's kind of that, oh, shirt moment. We'll get to that. Thank the gods on Kvoth's behalf that at least he has the wherewithal to ask for help from his friends. But as we will also see, I have a little bit of a problem with the choices he made in who to ask for help. So while he's preparing for his admissions, a woman walks into the bar and asks if he's the one who broke Ambrose Jackus's arm. And of course, he's kind of proud of this. So he says, yeah, that was me. And she offers to buy him a drink. And he is already kind of excusing his behavior to Chronicler and Bast a little bit because he's saying, you know, I hadn't been awake for more than 10 minutes and I was kind of fuddled. And there's a couple of these little things that he's only saying this to Chronicler. That's it. He, as a however old coat quoth is, is making excuses to Chronicler and whoever's reading this for his inability to notice that he is being targeted and duped. I mean, it makes sense. Foth's self-image is built around thinking of himself as the cleverest person around, and he has to find a way to justify how he, the cleverest person around, got duped so badly. True. But all of the signs are there. The girl is wearing gloves. The gloves get wet. She disappears as soon as he takes a drink, running out of the bar crying. This is not a person that you would expect to see at Anchors. All of that. And then we get the slow trickle of, well, something's clearly off, to he's been drugged. Yeah, I mean, our first clue is that Kvothe is suddenly able to justify spending a little bit of money on a hot pie and some honeyed nuts. That's not Kvothe that we know. The ledger still exists. I hadn't had them in over a year. I'm pretty sure it's been more than a year, dude. But, like, Kvoth, who scrapes the bottom of his purse for pennies to pay for tuition, was never going to be the person who bought food on a whim. Especially when he had a source for food at Anchors. Yeah, impulse purchases are not Kvoth's thing, unless those impulse purchases are loots, Loot cases and strings. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's not unusual for musicians or people who fancy themselves as such. Speaking as people who have on impulse purchased electric guitars and amps and things like that. You're not wrong. And so that's also what makes this unusual. And then Kvothe, who is scared to talk to women, sidles up to one and just starts talking loudly about how incredibly stupid the admissions 
process is at the school. And all I have to say is maybe this is Patrick Rothfuss admitting that when he initially created it in the name of the wind, it wasn't the most well thought out process. Like we've said before, this school does not have a good bureaucracy. It's putting a lampshade on it. And as someone who sometimes struggles with volume control, especially when nervous or excited, I can get it. Yeah, except in this case, he's not nervous or excited, really. He's just loudly proclaiming things because he doesn't see a reason not to, because he's been drugged, or the equivalent thereof if the item in question that has caused the problem is alchemical rather than a drug. It's like he's kind of in a manic phase. That's a really good point. Almost like a fugue state. Yeah, he feels complete clarity about everything. Like, as far as he's concerned, he feels normal. He feels fine. He feels perfectly possessed of his senses and his ability to make decisions. Except he has no control over his ability to make decisions, which is where our diminished agency comes in. His ability to tell right from wrong is gone. And not just right from wrong, his ability to actually assess whether something might even just be a good idea, even if it's a completely non-moral decision. He has the inability to distinguish between whether he should juggle knives or tie his shoes. Those two decisions have equal weight to him, and he can't even tell, again, whether something is even just a risky idea or a safe idea. He doesn't have any real algorithm at this point. If it just enters his head that he wants to do a thing, he just kind of does it. As we will continue to see. Which is, oh, so, so, so lovely when Ambrose shows up. The first tip-off that Ambrose might have something to do with Quoth's current state is that when Quoth starts insulting him, more than he normally does. Ambrose just kind of smiles, this wolfish smile. It has a spider to the fly <laughs> element to it. And the fact that Ambrose isn't even bothering to try and come up with retorts. And Quoth can't see that there's anything different, wrong, suspicious. Until Ambrose mentions the taste of plum which is something that Quoth has been struggling with all morning for some reason. And nutmeg. Fun fact, we have a friend that is allergic to nutmeg, and I had to be told that before I made chili for them. Yep. It's a random weird allergy. And it's a random weird ingredient that I put into a lot of crockpot meals. Also, it's common in Jamaican allspice. It is not. Is Jamaican allspice a separate plant? It is its own nut, I think. It's its own thing. It is not a blend of spices. It is something you can grate much like a nutmeg. Ah, cool. Seed? It might be a seed. Nutmeg may also be a seed. This is the proof that neither one of us knows everything, and while we have the ability to look it up, it's probably not that interesting to our audience, so we should continue on with the book. So... Quoth quickly decides he should probably go get a second opinion about this because this is not normal. And who does he choose, you know, in the school full of experts like Gillers and 
teachers that are well-versed in all things magical, alchemical, medical. Who does he choose? He chooses his buddy, Sim. Right, because Sim, who is maybe two or three years older than him, maybe, seems so much wiser than, I don't know, Arwell or Mola or anyone who has ever studied anything to do with human physiology and might tell him why his brain went off the deep end. To be fair, remember, his decision-making faculties are pretty much on the fritz right now. So we can't hold that against him too much. I just don't like that his instinct is, instead of asking for help from someone who could actually be an expert. You know, I get it though. I remember when I was his age, if I had a problem, I would be more likely to go talk to a friend than a teacher or a parent. I'm not saying this is right or good or sensible or anything like that. The instinct, though, is to go to a peer first. So I think I know why I have a completely different reaction. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I made friends with my teachers. I made friends with the parents. I made friends with adults. Sometimes I made friends with adults more easily than I did with children. And I recognized that adults were smarter than people my age. I had friends who were adults, but my friends who were kids my own age, one, I tended to go for friends who were generally more on the bookish and kind and thoughtful side. I'm not saying that my friends weren't bookish or kind or thoughtful. I'm just saying that I knew better than to ask a teenager something that had to be handled by an adult. The next thing to happen is Quoth shows up in Muse, pounding on a door in the hallway trying to get Sim to answer. And this actually reminds me, there was one time where I was working with my teammates at DigiPen on, I think it was my sophomore game, and we had to stay late and I forgot my keys that morning. And I remember our team leader gave me a ride home and I think it was after you'd gone to bed, but like a lot after you'd gone to bed. So it was like one in the morning and I'm just sitting there in this hallway full of doors to people's residence, just like ah, bedrooms on the other side of the apartment from the door. How do I get into my home? And I actually had texted my team leader and said, okay, I can't get into my home right now. And he was going to come back and get me. And then you finally got up. This was also before we had cats. Yeah, I remember that apartment. All the doors looked the same from the hallway. It's not like people put out personalizing effects or anything like that, like welcome mats or anything of that nature. And so if I had been drunk, which I wasn't, but if I had been drunk, it would have been very easy for me to choose the wrong door. I did not choose the wrong door, but I was also very aware that it was one o'clock in the morning and other people might have been able to hear me trying to get into our apartment. I felt really bad about it when I found out that you'd been waiting out there that long. 
I can't fault you for it, though. I don't think that you knew that I had been missing my keys, and I also wouldn't have expected you to be awake at 1 o'clock in the morning. You turn into a pumpkin at 8 p.m. Yeah, and I sleep pretty deeply, usually. Yeah. It didn't mean I didn't feel bad, though. That's fair. That means that you're a compassionate human being, and I appreciate that. One of the many reasons we work. <laughs> but yeah, Sim, to his credit takes it all in in pretty good stride and starts just asking questions. He can recognize that something's off. Well, Quoth is spitting on his floor. Of course something's off. What he quickly realizes is that Quoth doesn't have a decision-making algorithm right now. Sim knows what this is. He tells Quoth it's a variation on what is called a plumb bob, which is this alchemical substance, I guess, that takes away your inhibitions and your ability to make decisions based on right, wrong, risky, not risky, should, shouldn't, whatever. Like, everything has equal weight because of this thing that he has been dosed with. But he knows about this because Master Mandrag tells everyone in all of his classes at the beginning of the class all about it. And so... This automatically means that there are people at the university that know exactly what this is and wouldn't necessarily take a look at Quoth and assume that he is cracked or anything. But Sim, who is ostensibly the person who is the touchstone for making good decisions, makes a specific decision that Quoth should not see a doctor or a teacher. Now, because it's admissions, we can probably deduce that Arwill and Mandrag are busy and not immediately available to help. Okay, but that doesn't mean that there are no doctors. However, what I was going to get to next is that if he were to go to the Medica, Quoth would probably be able to find Mola, who knows him and would believe him and would probably also listen to Sim about this. And from there, they could make sure that he's in a safe place under observation. I think that in this case, Sim's decision-making is also an element of fear because he sees the way Kvothe reacts so vehemently against the idea of someone even broaching the idea of sending him to the rookery. That's fair. I have an actual fear of being committed to a psychiatric hospital because I do suffer from anxiety disorders. And I feel like in our current system, a lot of places that ostensibly are designed to help would in reality not help people who are dealing with anxiety disorders because they would make them intensely uncomfortable, which would just amplify the problem and not lead to a solution. But if I am in a car accident, I still want a doctor. Like I say, I don't think you're wrong in that. I think that I can understand why Sim would make this particular decision because I think Quoth has scared him a little bit in terms of what he might do at the mere thought of going there. That is fair. And there is another point that I would like to make that is kind of counter to my own arguments, which is after the exchange where Fella comes in and everything. They do talk about how Sim also didn't think that 
Kvothe would want to spew all of his secrets to everybody that he's been keeping at arm's length this entire time. And that's the only persuasive argument that I have, really. Sim is trying to misguidedly protect Kvothe from himself and from doing things that he would ultimately regret. And the biggest regret would be to tell everything about himself to anyone. I think Sim recognizes that in Kvothe's current state, he has diminished agency. So he wouldn't be revealing anything out of a sense of trust. And that as soon as the effect wore off, he would resent anything that people had learned as a result of that. And so I think that Sim's decision to not pry, not take advantage of this, and not abuse the trust that Kvothe has placed in him, speaks to Sim's character. I still don't agree with the decision, but I agree that Sim's desire to protect his friends and his friendships is admirable, even if the choices made are not ultimately the best choice in the situation. I would say that, yeah, his decision not to take Kvothe to the Medica is understandable but misguided. But every choice he makes from there on out is done with compassion and thoughtfulness and done with the eye to protecting Kvothe and protecting Kvothe's agency while he can't do it himself. I know that Sim has to be really curious about Kvothe's past and all of those things that Kvothe keeps locked away from everyone. But recognizing that he doesn't have a right to any of those secrets or those inmost thoughts is refreshing. You know, it's a reminder that we don't have a right to everybody else's internal state at all times and that they have the right to choose when and how and to whom they reveal that stuff. It's also important here when Fella comes in He's protecting her as well. Now, there's a couple of little things that do happen in here that I'd like to kind of touch on. This is, it seems, the origin of the hear me three times that Kvothe has said to Bast before. Because Sim is like, okay, you told me that you would trust my decision making, but you're not trusting my decision making. And this is not going to work if I have to tell you three times. And then he turns it into... I am telling you three times. And I kind of like that because it gives a little bit of character development and like, oh, aha, uh -huh, to behaviors that maybe didn't make a whole lot of sense with Kvothe and Bast's relationship. Kvothe seems to respond to that in a way that he doesn't to just ordinary entreaties. We get a sense that perhaps when he uses similar language with Bast, it's similarly affectionate and serious. It feels almost like a love language to me. Language used between two people who care deeply for one another and are trying to impress something on the mind, heart, and spirit of another person that they care for. I thought that was pretty powerful. Every decision that Sim is making here, I think, is made out of love for a friend. And I can't fault him for that element, even if the specifics of his decisions maybe I don't always agree with. Agreed. Now, there are a few things in here that are played for laughs, and it's even funnier when you get to hear the audiobook rather than just read it, including Kvothe's desire to just go kill 
Ambrose without any qualms at all. Like, no thought to consequences. Also, to kill the yappy dog or the spitting water onto Sim's floor. Yeah, I loved how Sim says, okay, we're going to have a 1 to 10 severity matrix, basically, where 1 is a minor infraction, 10 is a gross infraction. Quoth talks about killing Ambrose, and initially, Sim's like, okay, that's a 10. Okay, maybe an 8. Okay, maybe a 7. <laughs> Bedding water onto the floor is a 1. And then a little bit of, okay, please don't proposition, fella. I like this little bit of observation, and I think it's more of an observation from Patrick Rothfuss rather than necessarily in keeping with Quoth's character. I tried to think of something funny I could do while you were gone, but I couldn't. I think that means humor is rooted in social transgression. I can't transgress because I can't figure out what would be socially unacceptable. I had a friend in college who, his pranks were weird and unsettling. So there was one prank that he did where he broke into a mutual friend of ours room while our friend was away visiting his parents. And my friend's idea of prank here in this case was sit in our friend's chair, wear our friend's glasses, and eat our friend's snacks. He just did this for like four hours, hoping that our other friend would come back and find him this way. It was deeply weird and creepy. It's like, did you just try and talented Mr. Ripley, this guy? Well, that's a deep cut reference from around the time that this happened. <laughs> I'm dating myself, yes. <laughs> but yeah, like, my friend at least understood that there was something weird about this. I don't think he got just how weird it was, but he at least recognized that. Quoth, however, is in a state where he doesn't even understand that. He has no understanding of what's in line versus out of line, or the degree. Definitely not the degree. You know, he's taken his shirt off because he was too warm. He at least made the decision not to open the window because he was trying to minimize how many things he interacted with, which I'd say is probably the smartest choice he's made the whole day. And in his state, we can't really hold his decision-making matrix against him too much. So then Fella and Sim come into the room and Quoth can't help himself. And he says, I would give all of my money and my possessions just to see you naked. To fella, not to Sim. Except for my loot. That, I think, is completely keeping with both nature. Because, as we have discovered, the loot is his prized possession. It is the one thing in his life that I think it's not the object. I think it's what it represents, which is this visceral tie to his family. It is his solace. It is the thing that grounds him. It's something that ties him to this deep part of his identity. Like we're going to discuss here when he talks to Ari, his mother always told him that he could sing before he could talk. Music is such a crucial keystone element of his self that he could not give up his loot for anything, even in his degraded sense of agency. Like that's a bedrock part of his personality. And that also really underscores just how traumatic that transformation into coat truly is for him. 
this musicless person who can't even listen to someone else sing, who does not play music or anything like that, the kind of trauma that would turn this quoth into coat would have to be massive. Intense. Exactly. If that's what caused him to become coat, rather than a choice, because in this instance, coat is the antithesis of what makes quoth quoth. And even then, making that decision would be traumatic in and of itself. It's like a part of him died. Yeah, he had to sever this crucial portion of himself. The thing that would drive him to make that decision, he would be having to contend with some of the most desperate circumstances of his life. It's not something that he would do normally or do lightly. We have seen Quoth in some incredibly desperate circumstances before in these books. So to contemplate what that would be to drive him to that point, it would have to be incredibly serious. Here follows a couple of rather cringy back and forths between Quoth and Fella and Sim that ultimately result in Fella taking Quoth's tile that she would have taken three chapters ago and giving him the opportunity to let this lipid-soluble substance kind of warm its way out of him, except, as we'll see, there are going to be flashes of it coming back, and not to Quoth's benefit. But Sim choosing to give Quoth a place to stay so that he doesn't do anything more stupid is compassionate and caring and definitely within Sim's nature, I would still have told someone about it. Someone with more authority than Sim. Quoth, though, is not one who is known for institutional trust. True, but I'm saying that if I were Sim, I would find a way to cover Quoth's ash. And I think they're doing the best they can with what they know. So Quoth spends the day in Sim's room writing out the worst of the effects and by the evening is feeling at least well enough to be left safely on his own for a little bit. When he gets back to Anchors, though, we quickly understand that it's not the same as being cured. He says that it hadn't been that bad when I was with Simon. His presence was a pleasant distraction, but alone in my small garret room at Anchors, I was at the mercy of my memory. It was as if my mind was determined to unpack and examine every sharp, painful thing that I had ever seen. And he's 16. The first 12 years of his life were happy. They were safe. They were idyllic. And having those memories is like having a bag full of razors. Yeah, we're seeing both tormented by what he's lost and he's lost way more than anyone should have to lose over the course of a lifetime much less over the course of a childhood i lost my dad when i was 10 my memory of him everything about him to my memory of being a 10 year old was of this person who was larger than life and kept me safe i hesitate to use the word mother for my other parent I hesitate to use the word parent or guardian for that person because they weren't. 
they were abusive. I didn't have a whole lot of contact with them, even though I lived in their house. My dad kept me safe, or at least that's how my perceptions of things were. And then to suddenly not have him any longer. Trying to go back and remember the happy times that I had with him. Remembering the trauma of him being in the hospital when I was 10 and then afterward having to deal with someone who, quite frankly, should have been in a mental institution, but instead was in charge of providing care for me, or at least shelter, most of the time food. I spent a lot of time unpacking trauma, but also acquiring more. Quoth didn't have the luxury of having time to process what had happened, what he lost before he was thrust into the environment that was Tarpeian. And at that point, I think that you can work out the math where it was at least a fifth of his life, if not a quarter of his life, spent homeless and starving and just day by day trying to survive. And then to all of a sudden be in this other situation that he has this immense amount of agency over but is still hampered by the lack of money. And so he is still under a massive amount of stress at 15 years old, not only trying to scrape by enough so that he can continue living the life he would like to live or that he thinks he'd like to live, the one that seems like it's the right place for him, but also like being expected to keep up grades if they do grades or whatever, keep up skills and continue learning and growing. He hasn't had the luxury of being able to stop and relive the happy times that he had growing up. Now, he has said that he did examine those last few moments, those moments where he was confronted by Haliax and Cinder and the horror show that was his burned out troop. He's gone over them and over them and over them enough where it's almost like putting them into a rock tumbler. And all of the edges are worn smooth. But reaccessing the memories of the times that you miss so viscerally is like taking a piece of jagged glass and tearing it into all of your flesh. And the plumb bob, in effect, is causing his memories to attack him. And here, once again, we get to see Kvothe's good fortune in his friends. This case in the form of Ari. And it's a case where I feel like the shoe's on the other foot. Oftentimes, I think Kvothe thinks that he's protecting her. In this case, she's protecting him. And she's giving him the safe space that he oftentimes envisions giving her. It's also pretty clear that Ari has been through something intensely traumatic. Probably more than just the school taking its emotional toll on her. She says, I know, it's bad sometimes, isn't it? She's gone through something. She says, you have a stone in your heart. And some days it's so heavy that there's nothing to be done. But you don't have to be alone for it. You should have come to me. I understand. And this is really the first time that Kvothe has confronted how much he misses his mother. He talks about his dad or he tells chronicler idioms that his dad would have said. These are foundational. These are things that he truly remembers 
to a very specific degree. Kind of like every once in a while, I'll tell you something that my dad would have said. And you said that your dad says that all the time. And it's just this little connection that we have where these wonderful memories get to be shared, even as you've never gotten to meet my dad. So bringing up all of these things where Kvothe is finding similarities in his own life to how his dad was and wondering what his dad would have thought of him. Those appear all the time, but there's not a whole lot of acknowledgement about his mother. It's almost like he doesn't want to touch those memories for fear of being cut. But due to the plumb bob, that barrier bursts and thank the universe that the person who was there for him was Ari. Kvothe doesn't have many friends, but he seems to have chosen the ones he has pretty well. He talks about how his mother used to sing to him, or just hum to him, when he was a baby. Just a descending third. And I actually want to look up real quick what a descending third is, and see if one of us can play it. Okay. It'll probably be on the piano, because it's easier. So if I were to guess, it would be something about, like... Something like that for descending thirds. little baby Kvothe is not humming chords, so it would probably be more like this. You know, depending on how many notes little baby Kvothe was humming back at his mom. So based off of my rudimentary understanding of music theory, the little humming descending thirds was something along the lines of what I just played on the piano. But it's just so sweet knowing that right now we have a little niece who is just under a year old. And the idea that before she could talk, if she could respond musically, it's just really, really touching and sweet. And lovely. And also knowing that Patrick Rothfuss has kids and just how much he absolutely adores his kids makes me wonder if there's a little bit of that parental love in that sequence that he was talking about. I think he's probably tapping into some of that. I get the impression based on how he talks about his own parents that it's a blend of the two. How it's something that he wants to make sure that he passes on to his children and that they pass on to any children they may have. But once again, at the end of this chapter, just like our seven words from, I think it was episode two, it's okay, I'm here, you're safe. Ari is one of my favorite characters. This is a really pure moment. It's pure, it's wholesome, it's kind. We should all be so lucky to have someone like Ari in our lives. And... 
when possible, find ways to be the Ari in someone else's. So that brings us to chapter eight, questions. Quoth ends up writing out the remainder of the days as best he can, which is to say not very well. And we once again get the morning of admissions, except this time it's not a false start. And Anchor says, even if you're not hungry, you should eat something you got to test. In the best quasi-parental, now you should eat something. Anchor generally knows what's up. He also mentions that his Iceless, which is basically a sympathy-powered refrigerator, is acting up. And Quoth offers to go take a look at it. So... First off, Anchor uses the excuse of, I need to use up the milk and the eggs. You should eat some scrambled eggs. The isolus is acting up. Blah, blah, blah. And I think, if I'm going to analyze this little situation, I think Anchor might be manipulating both a little bit into going to fix it. Like, he's using... The fact that it's broken as an excuse to kind of force food onto the kid, but also subtly, rather than just asking for help, making it seem like Foth's idea. I think there may be a little of that. I think that Anchor knows that this is probably a problem he wouldn't be able to solve. At least not for free. And he probably also knows that Foth is going to need all the money he can get. Right, except there is no hey, I'll pay you, kid. There's just, hey, could you take a look at it? I think that he is manipulating Kvothe into doing this so that he has an excuse to give him more money because he knows that Kvothe won't take charity. I also think that that's the whole point behind saying, hey, the milk and the eggs are going bad. You should eat them. I think there's a little bit of that. And I think that his Isolus was legitimately broken for non-intentional reasons. I'm not sure that he didn't scratch it himself. Uh, it seems like the sort of thing that could happen just in a busy kitchen to me. It seems like it could be an accident. Or it could be a little bit of altruistic malfeasance. I have no reason to suspect that. I'm not going to speculate on it. But I do think that how Anchor handles everything is done with a little bit of benevolent manipulation here. And it's telling that... Quoth, for his cover identity, does choose that of innkeeper because so many innkeepers have been truly kind to him. That's something that he wants to preserve. But moving on, when Quoth cashes out his bar tab, Anchor gives him a little bit extra, in fact, the full talent, to cover the work that he did on the Iceless. And Quoth is like, well, that was not what I expected. And he's grateful. And on with the ledger, which, again juxtaposition between oh, I'll just spend my money, no worries and I have four talents that's all I have everything I have, it's four talents so while he's out he happens to notice Elodin kind of skulking about one of the courtyards and so he goes over to talk to him at which point Elodin continues on his way he was on his way into the master's hall and Quoth just kind of follows him without being invited it's clear that he's trying to gun for an invitation into the naming class. But he does the thing of, can I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question. And then he makes a statement. It is not a question. It's kind of like every time that you see those people going like at a convention 
it is not a question. It is a, I'm going to comment on something and then maybe at the end have my voice go up so that it might be a question. And then maybe the person that I'm asking will recognize that I'm good and smart. <laughs> and compliment me. And you've made a word up for this. It's a quement. Right. Naturally, of course, Elodin has no patience for this. Not that Elodin has much patience for anything. He specifically says that's not a question. Yeah, and I love Elodin's willingness to just kind of toss out the snark. <laughs> Quoth needs it. He definitely needs someone who can toss it back as good as he does. True. Now... There are definitely some darker elements showing through in this where I think Elodin is trying to assess Kvothe's character or something happens that Elodin causes. And then they are rudely interrupted after the whole room kind of sucks all the color and life out of itself and the light. And then all of a sudden everything's fine because... Elodin's no longer concentrating on whatever he was doing to make everything unsettling. And lo and behold, it is him. Naturally, Quoth is annoyed by all of this. And so is Elodin. And so is him. I think that Hem thinks that he's very clever. Elodin and Quoth are going up the stairs like normal human beings, sort of. And Hem wants down the stairs and he kind of shoves them off to the side and makes a quip. Might I recommend a book for your perusal? It's a lovely piece of reading titled Hallways, Their Form and Function, A Primer for the Mentally Deficient, which kind of to me sounds a little bit like the line of books that is C++ for dummies or what have you. It is a fun and clever little bit of put-downery. At least Tim thinks it is. No one else seems to be laughing. So then Elodin waits for him to leave, and then they move into the hallway, come to a door, and he kind of fiddles with it for a little bit and then asks Quoth for help. Correction. What he says is, much to my dismay, I find myself without a way to get past this door. What would you do in this situation, Rolar Quoth? At which point, Quoth is the dumbest dum-dum of all dum-dums. He naturally assumes that he ought to get past this door. Right. So he does. With a little bit of clever lockpicking, he manages to open the door and the two of them waltz inside. And then Elodin proceeds to gather up all of the clothing inside of the bedchambers, hand it all to Quoth, who is not asking a single question about Elodin's odd behavior, probably because at this point he just expects that Elodin is going to have odd behavior. And any odd behavior is actually not odd at all. It's completely normal because it's Elodin. Kvothe's knack for not really knowing what the right question to ask is bites him in the butt here. Right. Also the wrong people to ask. Yes. <laughs> so oddities continue. Elodin takes a swig of whatever alcohol is in the decanter. He goes over to the fire and gets it all ready to receive articles of clothing from Quoth's pile. And Quoth is just here asking Elodin, 
hey, can I be in your class, please? I want to be in your class. Why won't you teach me? I don't understand. And Elodin is just like, you are a special kind of idiot. I'm going to continue doing this. And after a little bit and some prompting of, oh my God, you are asking the wrong questions, it dawns on Quoth. Suddenly I realized what was going on. Oh God, I said, whose rooms are these? I love this so much because Quoth just has no intellectual curiosity at all. But he feels like he is entitled to everything. It reminds me of something that an old manager of mine used to say, which was, if you ask better questions, you'll get better answers. So the first question he asked was, can I join your class? And he goes, uh, no, you haven't proven yourself yet. But why? Master Elodin, why don't you want to teach me naming? And Elodin's like, that's the wrong question. Why are you burning your clothes? Nope, not even close to the right question. <laughs> oh my God, what are we doing? What? Whose clothes are these? <laughs> Whose rooms are these? <laughs> <sighs> and then Elodin gives a satisfied nod. Very good. I would have also accepted. Why don't you have a key for this room? Or, what are we doing here? Doors are locked for a reason. <laughs> and then there's another little bit, and this made me think a little. You think I will keep you safe. Which is interesting in juxtaposition to what Ari said. Which is, it's okay, I'm here, you're safe. And it's almost like Kvothe has an angel and a demon on his shoulders. And he keeps underestimating his angel and putting all of his faith in the demon. That's usually how demons work. <laughs> One of the things that's telling here also is that compared to contemporary academics where universities typically take an in loco parentis sort of take on things where they assume a sort of quasi-parental responsibility for their students, we're still in a mostly medievalish society where that is not the case. They don't have to worry about insurance. Insurance hasn't been invented yet. Elodin is not affecting the school's premiums. <laughs> so long as the school is still standing, who cares about a few students who've lost their marbles here and there? <laughs> or teachers. Exactly. They're dealing with forces beyond the ken of mortals. That's kind of the stock and trade. It's the risk everyone takes. Why are you burning all of Hem's clothes? I asked. Because I hate him. He's a jerk. For the same reason that Quoth was all ready to go and just murder Ambrose. He's a jerk. I hate him. And then the one bit of self-awareness tempered by, I'm still not going to admit that I am completely and 100% idiotically wrong. Sometimes I don't think things all the way through. And Elodin just going, obviously. Don't you have admissions coming up? You better go get changed. Otherwise you'll smell like smoke. <laughs> right. Just so snotty about that. <laughs> this is an object lesson in the difference between intelligence and wisdom. Which anyone that has played D&D should understand. Because there is an int score and a whiz score, and they are not the same. Not at all. I can get away with this because I live here. What's your excuse? 
is at the <laughs> end of that chapter. Oh my gosh. I just, oh, and he's got admissions in like a half an hour. Eladin's like, I've got tenure. I'm not worried. <laughs> For some reason, they'll never get rid of me. I'm not worried. So with that, I believe it's time for us to talk about our Fornemos. Who'd you pick? All right. So you thought that I was going to pick Sim. Do you still think I'm going to pick Sim? No. Why? You had some rather pointed thoughts on his trust of authority or distrust more accurately. Right. So who would you think that I'll pick? I think you're going to pick Ari. I think you're right. So again, back with my own lived experiences, throughout a lot of my life, I have run into some problems that I have felt were insurmountable or some traumas that are hard to get by. And sometimes you just need to tell someone about them. Sometimes you just need to tell someone you had a bad day. Sometimes you need to tell someone how your day was bad. And it is within our human instinct to try to fix the problem for other people. Well, if you would just do this, things would be better. Discounting the idea that the person you are giving said advice to either has more information that would negate all of your suggestions, has possibly tried what you're suggesting and it didn't work, or simply doesn't want to fix the situation in a simple band-aid way. And sometimes all I ever wanted when I was feeling emotionally raw, hurt, stuck, was for someone to just hold on to me and keep me grounded and from leaving either dissociating or other means. I just wanted a presence, a comfort, sympathy, love. And even people who are intensely broken are capable in many cases, and in some cases even more capable, of providing that love and comfort for people who are going through trauma or strife. And instead of prying into what was wrong with Kvothe, Ari simply says, it's okay to talk about it. You can be safe with me. I'm just going to sit here and cradle your head in my lap, comfort you, love you in the way that I can, and give you a place that feels safe. I was really struck by the way Ari responds, which is one with zero judgment or shame or anything like that. It's just... You're feeling how you feel right now, and you're feeling how you need to feel. You don't need to worry about hiding it or denying it. It's safe to feel this way and feel it for as long as you feel like you need to. It's not going to change the fact that you're safe here, and I'll be here as long as you need me to be. And I think that willingness to meet Kvothe where he is is really important. It's what he needed. And it's notable that this is also an instance of Ari seeking Kvothe out and not him looking for her in their usual meeting place. Either she was called to him, drawn to him, or there is an aspect of their relationship that hasn't been shown before where she feels comfortable enough going to his home in the same way that he goes to hers. 
I think that's also an element of her having more agency moving forward. We're seeing her as this complete person who can make her own decisions and that she can be the person she wants to be, the person she feels she needs to be to help the people she cares about. I think it's a good choice. Thank you. So now it's my turn to share an interesting fact this week. And I have titled this one, Clone, Clone on the Range. The gene pool of the black-footed ferret consists of genetic material linked back to just seven individuals. In fact, scientists believe that the species was extinct until 1981, when a rancher in Wyoming found a group of black-footed ferrets on his land, the members of which have been used to kickstart a captive breeding program. And conservationists have been trying to recover the species ever since, with several reintroduced populations that now exist across the country. In 2008, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service concluded a five-year study finding that the species remains one of the most endangered mammals in the United States and continues to warrant its endangered status, adding that extinction is not guaranteed as the recovery of the species within reach. In 2018, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service issued a permit allowing for cloning research into the endangered species, which has now advanced to the next stage, resulting in the birth of Elizabeth Ann. Born December 10th, 2020, Elizabeth Ann is the genetic twin of a black-footed ferret named Willa, who died in 1988. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department preserved Willa's cells at the San Diego Zoo Global's Frozen Zoo, where they were stored in a cryobank for decades. The Frozen Zoo was created more than 40 years ago with the hope that it would provide solutions to future conservation challenges. So it's actually kind of awesome that we're seeing these species that had for so long been on the brink of extinction being preserved in ways that they can be brought back and hopefully reintroduced into the wild and perhaps make a comeback. Hopefully it doesn't turn into a Jurassic Park scenario naturally. <laughs> Jurassic Park is one of those extreme things that feels plausible because humans are nuts, but any scientist worth their salt would probably choose to do things like a specific genetic strain of ferret before bringing back a T-Rex. So things like California condors or other examples where this could be really useful. Other key pieces of our ecosystem that are gradually disappearing could perhaps be brought back and reintroduced into the food chain. Or into just the world. I don't necessarily need to think of the circle of life in terms of this. Well, but you consider like with wolves in Yellowstone, the wolf population has declined, which has meant that the deer population has skyrocketed out of control and is eating too much grass. So you could use technology like this to increase the wolf population to control the deer and keep the grass from getting demolished. The circle of life plays a role in all of this. And I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that to put the happy, friendly, fuzzy stamp on it, because who looks at a ferret that hasn't owned a ferret and goes, those things are awful. They'll look at a ferret and see how adorable they are, even as adults, and go, oh my god, I want it, cute aggression, until they own one. <laughs> that out of the way, let's move on to our thing of the week. It's your turn to recommend something, so what do you have? All right, so I don't like that everything that we've recommended ultimately costs money, but I'm going to continue doing it at least this time around, I'll try to find some things that are a little less resource intensive for future ones. But what I am recommending now is YouTube Premium. 
is actually paying for YouTube. And there are a few reasons. I wish I knew how the breakdown of like the AdSense versus any profit sharing from YouTube Premium worked for creators, but I don't. I want the creators to get money. I want the creators I love to get money by me passively watching all of their videos. However, the way that that most of the time works is with ads being placed in front of or in the middle of videos. One of my YouTube accounts, the one that I normally use and the one that we watch on the television has a YouTube premium account status. And then the one for our podcast does not. So every once in a while when I'm logged into that one, I'll click on a video and remember exactly why I do not want the free version of YouTube. And also why it would probably annoy a lot of people into not watching YouTube. The ads are, ah, they are so just prevalent and awful and I hate them. And most everything that I get streaming wise does not have ads. And so having that show up on YouTube, which is the bulk of what I watch on the television is just, no, mm -mm, don't want. On top of that, the idea that sensitive subject matter, like scientific information gets demonetized. I watch a lot of science shows and a lot of sometimes even like reaction to pop culture done by doctors or lawyers or what have you. And you say the wrong thing and they cut off your funding for that video. And then the other fun thing is that certain advertisers, like most name brand huge advertisers, do not want to have their ads play in front of controversial subject matter like anything to do with LGBTQIA plus content or content made by someone from that community that has nothing to do with being in that community. It's just that the person who is presenting the vlog sometimes talks about it because they are in that community, even if that one video doesn't. And to make matters worse, places that no one who is watching these videos would ever support are the ones that are advertising on them. So like PragerU. I am beyond upset by the fact that they show up in front of a lot of LGBTQIA content because they have figured out this manipulative way of getting their ads to show in front of this controversial quote content and it's disgusting. So I never get to see these things unless I watch a breakdown of why they're just intensely awful and wrong. But on top of that, like having a video that is running for 20 minutes and having an ad show up in the middle of it, having just random advertisements for food or in the US there's a lot of advertisement for pharmaceutical drugs or political ads. I never see them. I never have to see any of them ever. I love it. <laughs> Again, I watch so much YouTube. I watch cute videos of foxes at a save a fox rescue. And I watch tons of science content. And I watch a lot of PBS shows. And I watch a lot of things that are like breakdowns of Marvel movies and TV shows. No ads. It's like somewhere between 10 and $15 a month. 
and I don't care about any other perk, no ads. And I can just stick a video on that has a soundtrack that I really enjoy, like the soundtrack to the video game Gree, or right now I've been listening to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, or I'll listen to Chill Hop, Avatar The Last Airbender, while I'm editing all day long. And the only annoyance that I have is occasionally the PS4 is like, you're not there any longer, I'm going to turn off now. The YouTube premium, if you watch a lot of YouTube, or if you want to watch a lot of YouTube, but you're just annoyed to hell about all the ads, totally recommend it. Super, super recommend it. It's a good recommendation. Well, what about you? Like, you don't have it on your account, and you don't watch YouTube on my account on your devices. So what's your take on that? Most of what I get advertised are guitar ads. That's not terrible. No, it really isn't. Like, that said, I mean, it is not helping with, <laughs> with a budding gear acquisition syndrome. Because I don't need to know when Guitar Center is having a guitar-a-thon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need that. I also get every single ad for Fender Play and every other guitar tutorial system out there. They're all advertising to me. I don't mind. You know, I acknowledge that a lot of this is because I'm a dude and my account is flagged as such. That is a good point because my personal account, they code me as a woman. And there was one time before YouTube Premium existed and before YouTube Red, which is what I originally signed up for, existed, where I worked in an office where it was 10 guys and me. And while I don't always identify as woman, Google has no idea how to advertise to somewhere that gender doesn't exist. And so my boss mentioned like, your ad experience is so much different than mine because I got bras advertised to me. I got makeup advertised to me. I got pads advertised to me. And if there's something I really, really, really do not want when I am in an office full of dudes is an advertisement for like tampons. What the hell? I just don't. Nope. Don't care. Stop it. Um... Or a zoom-in shot on somebody's boobs? I just, no, that is not what I want. And I'm like, but I'm a geek. I like music. I like all of these other things. I have even gone into Google and told it what my interests are. And they're like, well, but see, you understand, like, that's all coded for, like, cishet dude. And I'm like, yeah, and? And they're like, but you're not one. And so <laughs> the one and only time I can remember an ad being the weirdest amalgamation of this should be for you, but it's definitely not, is I was advertised Star Wars makeup. And I'm just looking at this and I'm like, it's in front of a science video. And I'm like, what? Why? This is a product? Why? Yeah, as the algorithms have grown more targeted, it is abundantly clear just how much they miss the people that fall through the cracks and the things that they don't take into context when they make their advertising decisions. I think the thing that makes me really angry is either getting a political ad in front of a political podcast video, because I do listen to political podcasts, and I watch a lot of left-of-center comedy, like late-night comedy breakdowns that also include political commentary. 
And so trying to advertise not so left side things at me, I don't want that. But the thing that really, really angers me is getting an ad that tells me that transgender boys are just falling into a fad and that we shouldn't give them proper medical attention and psychological attention because we should just be telling them, no, 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 you're not a boy. You were born a girl. You are a girl, which is rage inducing. <laughs> and I don't want rage inducing advertisements in front of my safe space vlog. Please, thank you. Go away. <laughs> Thanks. I hate it. Yeah, I would say if you have the means to do so, definitely consider YouTube Premium as a way to make your YouTube experience less rage-inducing. Or just better. It is better. It's a lot better. It's better flow. There's not as many ads. I really hope that some of my money goes to the creators I watch. I'm going to have to do a little bit of research on that. If anyone knows the answer to that, please let me know. Well, with that, I think we're going to jump into the seven words from the book, which is my turn. Oh my God, there are a lot. There are so many. And if you will excuse me right now, I have to go see if anyone on our Twitter has told me if they would rather it be sweet or funny or what have you, because I wanted a little help narrowing it down. No one helped me, no. Somebody liked the tweet, but nobody has told me whether they want it to be sweet or funny or poignant or just random. Should have made it a poll. I should have made it a poll. Sigh. Well, I guess you're just stuck with me reading a few of them off and then randomly pointing and saying that one. All right. <laughs> because there are just a whole ton of them. There are so many. Not even close to the right question. You think I will keep you safe. And I suddenly realized what was going on. And Will is trying to figure out if they are actually seven words. It's hilarious. Some masters prefer clever students, I muttered. Easy if you know what you're doing. Which I actually want to make a point on that. Things, if you know what you're doing, if you have an expertise in something, can feel or appear to be a lot easier, especially from the outside, than if you do not know what you're doing or you don't have the right tools. So things are easy if you know what you're doing. If you've had enough practice, built up your muscle memory... Have more than a theoretical knowledge of it? Yes. The little section with Ari had so many. I heard a soft sound behind me. It's okay, she said quietly, come here. You have a stone in your heart. You can say it, Ari said softly. Then I began to cry in earnest, sharp as a mouthful of broken glass. But all was not right with me. Then there's some that are a little more funny. A purgative doesn't sound like much fun talking about trying to make Foth throw up whatever it is he's ingested. Shouldn't we take him to the Medica? Thank you, fella. A little more confidence and forcefulness on that would have been nice, but, you know, at least you tried. It's not a simple lowering of inhibition. Fella muffled a laugh behind her hand. I need to trade slots with you. I need some sort of behavioral touchstone. Open this door and talk to me. I could suddenly smell nutmeg and plum. And then there are two that I'm not sure which one I should choose for my Instagram quote of the week 
So I'm going to get you to decide for me. Okay. The first one is, I don't think I have any secrets. Okay. And the other one is, she said I sang before I spoke. All right. So I actually have one that I would like to share from all this as well here. Let me find it here real quick. It would be interesting to see if it's one that I do have highlighted but chose not to say because there are so many of them. I have. I was born in a barn, actually. (laughs) That one I didn't highlight. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I like the first one that you picked. I don't think I have any secrets. You think that that's better than she said I sang before I spoke? I think that one is cute and everything, but I also sometimes have a limit for how much cute I can take. Aw. The cats took it up already, didn't they? They did. They really did. I've got a limitation on how much I can handle the coffee beans. (laughs) Our little dark roast and medium roast coffee? Yep. Well, coffee cats? Well, I might have to do that as a poll. So, I have seven words from life, so I've got three. First one is, some e-commerce platforms are just plain butts. Another one I said is, organized crime calls for a disorganized detective. Right, because we're watching Law & Order, or at least more accurately, I'm watching Law & Order and you were there. Yeah. And the other one is, let the record show I ate cherries. Is that the one that you want the nice little quote thing for? Yeah, sure. Okay. So with that, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 9 and 10 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of ways and means. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon account, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find early access to our show, as well as Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, ways to make me do art, and other fun and exciting items. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding! Did our neighbors just decide that music was a great idea on the outside of their house? Sounds like. Ah! What f**k? What f**k? What f**k? What f**k? <laughs>